I'm liking the pep in this copyright expired song. I like my copyright expired songs the way I like my coffee. Piping hot and with something in it that makes me want to get up and go. This copyright expired song is Oh Is She Dumb by Eddie Cantor. That seems like a very 1922 thing to make fun of. She's dumb. Oh, you mean like she's mentally capable, but she makes bad decisions? No, she's dumb. Like her brain doesn't work. Maybe because of a vitamin deficiency she got as a child. It's funny. Laugh it up. This song sort of pioneers the concept of yo mama jokes, or at least the format of like, how dumb is she? It's got that joke structure in it. I don't know if this was the absolute beginning of that, but it seems very early days. So let me let me try some of these lyrics out as uh, see if they work as jokes. Okay, she's so dumb, she doesn't know where she's at. Ugh. All right, that one's lacking, but it's the very beginning of this format. You got to crawl before you can walk. So we'll get there. Let's try another one. She's so dumb, she thinks an airship is a tank. All right, also not good, but that's just there so that it can rhyme with this. She's so dumb, she thinks that daylight savings is a bank. There we go. Now we're cooking with gas, especially if you lean into a bank. Let's try another. She's so dumb, she tried to buy plum pudding from a plumber. That one's not bad. That's a solid B minus. She's so dumb, she thinks iceberg is a Yiddish name. Okay, you know what? We're sailing into dangerous waters there. It's 1922. <laughs> We're talking about Judaism. That's probably not going to lead anywhere good, so I'm going to cut it off right there. Hello, and welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. I'm Jeff Maurer. I write I Might Be Wrong and record the I Might Be Wrong podcast. What an amazing fucking coincidence. Everything I'm about to read can be found on my Substack, which is imightbewrong.substack.com, where you will find this article and many, many others. I encourage you to subscribe. It's completely free for a little while longer anyway. And I encourage you to share the articles with your friends. Maybe you have a friend who is basically a normie liberal like I am, but then will perhaps listen to Elizabeth Warren speak and think, Jesus Christ. Well, then your friend might be in the market for this podcast and Substack, although I have readers and listeners from all across the political spectrum because they like the jokes, and they write to me and say, I like the jokes, I think you're kind of full of shit, but I like the jokes, and you know what? That's all cool. Today's episode is called, Is There Even the Slightest Chance That We, as a Nation, Are Becoming Somewhat Humorless? I am entering the slap dialogue. It's high time somebody commented on this Will Smith slap thing, and I think that someone should be me. No, I don't really care that much about the slap, but <laughs> the slap is a nice entry point to talk about something that I do care about, which is, I, I wonder, you know, I'm a comic. I've been a comic for a long time now. Are we as a nation becoming a bit humorless? I don't know. It's hard to say. Comedy clubs aren't exactly double-blind studies, but it often feels like we're maybe becoming a little humorless. Certainly that still image of Chris Rock wincing as he gets slapped by a very large man did make me think, yeah, that's about how it feels sometimes these days. And I don't know which direction the trend line is headed, but I do know that I think humorlessness is a bad trait. So I wanted to talk about why I think it's a bad trait, where I think it comes from. And this article, like so many of my articles, is basically just me thinking out loud. So 
Is there even the slightest chance that we, as a nation, are becoming somewhat humorless? Subtitle, maybe just a smidge? So my main reaction to the slap, capital T, capital S, is to wonder, so is this something that comedians need to worry about now? Getting cold cocked by the Fresh Prince after making a reference to a 20-year-old movie? Is it just Will Smith? that I need to worry about, or do I need to be afraid of any star of a beloved 90s sitcom? If I make a Cider House Rules joke, is there a chance that Joey Lawrence is going to rush the stage and kick me in the face? Is there a chance that one day I will get pile-drived by Urkel in response to a particularly saucy She's All That reference? I guess we can't say no. The Oscars, of course are already the gig that no comedian wants. Knowing that the eyes of Twitter's most dyspeptic morons, and that's a competitive category, would be on the event, a lot of comedians have turned this gig down in recent years. The Oscars did not have a host in 2019, 20, or 21. It really is remarkable, remarkable that comics, and we will take any gig, by the way, but not this gig, comics are shunning a primetime gig that was previously filled by legends like Johnny Carson and Bob Hope, so there's a lot of prestige there, they're shunning it largely because there's a high probability (laughs) that if they take the gig, they will get denounced as history's greatest bigot. That's where things stood before this year, and I do not think that a public assault by a man who was presented with a golden statue 20 minutes later is exactly going to sweeten the pot. Is America becoming humorless? Look, I don't know. People who lean yes on that question should concede that there are no solid measures indicating that we are, and people who lean no should concede that there never could be any solid measures. I mean, how do you measure giggles per capita, really? You don't. So, I'm not going to argue that we are definitely becoming more humorless. Maybe we are, maybe we're not. I don't know. Maybe there was an Oscars ceremony long ago where Judy Garland slammed Jack Benny over the back with a folding chair and history just forgot about it. I do not know. What I'm going to argue is that if we are becoming more humorless, that's a bad thing because the inability to take a joke, I think, is a sign of weakness and fear. So here we go. Time for a journey Way, way, way up my own ass. What is comedy? Damned if I know. But comedy has something to do with the elimination of fear. Scientists have studied this. Primatologist Signe Proshoft argues that smiling and laughter are derived from primates' bared teeth display and their play face display, respectively. The bared teeth display typically indicates submission. It says, I am not a threat. In some species, it indicates a desire for peaceful interaction. The play face, similarly, occurs only during moments of affection. So, I don't know if these two things together establish that human laughter is a way of saying, I am safe and I am unafraid. But it makes sense to me, and honestly, scientists in the 70s spent a lot of time electrocuting monkeys to gather this data, so I do feel that we should at least consider it. 
or else they were shocking the monkey in vain. So the idea that laughter indicates an absence of fear is consistent with the observation that many people have made that many jokes raise the possibility of a danger only to immediately wave it away. Think of the he hates these cans bit from The Jerk. If you've seen the movie The Jerk, there's a scene where Steve Martin is a gas station attendant. A psycho killer is after him. The psycho killer is shooting at him with a sniper rifle, missing, hitting the cans. And Steve Martin's conclusion is he hates the cans. Stay away from the cans. It's a classic bit made so much funnier when a guy on a podcast tries to describe it verbally very quickly. Sorry about that. But it does go to show that attempted murder can be funny. It can be funny if the murderer is clearly going to fail and if Steve Martin acts like an idiot in a way that says there is no actual danger here. So it's raising the possibility of danger and then immediately saying, no, there is no danger here. Now, it's worth noting that person acting strangely is the basis of a lot of comedy. Don Quixote is basically this. I Love Lucy is basically this. 90% of sketch comedy is... (laughs) person acting strangely while bystanders are way, way, way more patient than they would be in real life. Nobody in real life would tolerate the church lady. They would all say, hey, you're acting really, really rudely. I don't even know why I came on this show. I'm certainly not going to sit here while you insult me for five minutes, but they have to sit there. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a sketch. So person acting strangely is a big part of comedy. One classic person acting strangely variant is high status person acting strangely, from Jack Dunaghy on 30 Rock to Archie Bunker on All in the Family to Selena Meyer on Veep. Comedy characters are very often bosses, dads, politicians, and other authority figures who don't know what they're doing. This makes sense. We all feel the pinch of authority figures sometimes. It can be cathartic to point out that some powerful people are idiots. And when you combine authority figure is an idiot with but things turn out okay, as happened in virtually every episode of The Office, the American version, and King of the Hill, to name just two examples, that can produce good comedy. But comedy isn't always directed at the powerful. Sometimes it targets a weak person, which brings me to the villain of this piece, children. Kids are the worst! This is the only podcast with the balls to say it. Children instinctively mock any perceived difference, and mercilessly. Probably everyone listening to this can recall a time from their childhood when they were teased for being different. I sure as hell was. Of course, if we return to the idea that comedy has something to do with eliminating fear, then we can see why a kid might make fun of another kid in order to make themselves feel safe. Saying, you're doing things wrong, is also a way of saying, I am doing things right. It is basically a status grab by these little status-seeking monsters. By taunting a nonconformist, a kid is asserting that they are following the rules. They are in the group, and being part of a group makes them feel powerful and safe. In the herd dynamics of elementary school, making fun of a classmate for having the wrong lunchbox is the equivalent of a gazelle tripping another gazelle and yelling, Hey, lion, eat that one right there. Now, kids have to be taught not to do this. They're not going to learn this on their own. We typically do teach them that. The societal shift 
against bullying that's happened in the last few decades, I think is a very good thing. Humor at the expense of the weak or vulnerable is not okay. We have several expressions that capture this, including pick on someone your own size and don't kick someone while they're down. And personally, I am fine with enforcing this rule with something that is less than a live broadcast beatdown from a guy who once played Muhammad Ali. So, don't make fun of the weak is a good rule. When someone says, you can't make fun of me, they are basically saying, I am weak. And that is okay. Let me be clear about that. Being weak, that is okay. Another sign of societal progress, I think, is moving away from the dumbass machismo (laughs) that requires never admitting weakness. This is the stupidity that causes some dudes to respond to any injury smaller than a whale harpoon to the brain with, dude, I'm fine. We all know that guy. Look, we were all weak once. Most of us will be weak again at some point in our lives. Protecting the weak is something that a healthy society does. But let's also recognize that weakness is not a good state of being. It is precarious. It does not feel good. Protecting a weak person really should be plan B. Plan A should be for the person to be strong. In the context of comedy, a weak person doesn't get to be in on the fun. They have to be the Jehovah's Witness kid from elementary school, sitting in the library while the rest of the class celebrates a birthday. By labeling a person protected... We are acknowledging that they, unfortunately, cannot presently enjoy the feeling of safety that comedy provides. And some people fetishize weakness. There is a clear connection, I think, between weakness and empathy. Showing weakness invokes empathy in others. This is the core of the parent-child bond. When a child shows vulnerability, it triggers something deep inside of us. If it didn't, of course, we would probably ditch the kid next time they pitched a fit in the middle of a target. Empathy exists for a reason. It protects the weak, but a person with too much empathy, and yes, I think that a person can have too much empathy, can enable perpetual weakness in others. In a culture that overvalues empathy, and yes, I think a culture can overvalue empathy, That can cause people to encourage weakness in others so that they can swoop in and play the hero-protector role, which is another thing I've written about, such as in my post-Kyle Rittenhouse article called We Need Fewer Heroes. So now let me make this less abstract. In her comedy special Nanette, Hannah Gadsby criticized self-deprecation by gay comics. Now... I can see where she's coming from. Comedy that stereotyped gay people was very common very recently. When I was starting out in the mid-2000s, you would often see a gay comic doing borderline minstrelry, basically. I completely understand where Gadsby's aversion to comedy that gets a laugh at gay people's expense is coming from. But Hannah Gadsby applies her criticism in a way that does not make sense to me. 17 minutes into the special, if you haven't seen it, Gadsby executes an abrupt tonal shift. Really a record scratch moment. She kind of stops the comedy and announces, I have to quit comedy. And here's her explanation. And normally I would read (laughs) 
this quote in an Australian accent because she is Australian and Australian is a top five funny accent. It's probably only beaten, honestly, by Boston and Upper Midwest. But because I'm disagreeing with her here, I'm going to go ahead and not add fuel to the fire by mocking her accent, though it is objectively ridiculous. Anyway, the quote is, this is Hannah Gadsby speaking now, I have been questioning this whole comedy thing. I don't feel very comfortable in it anymore. I had built a career out of self-deprecating humor. That's what I've built my career on, and I don't want to do that anymore. Do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from someone who already exists in the margins? It's not humility, it's humiliation. End quote. So, again, I understand where she's coming from. And it does sound reasonable on its face, but I have to say, I respectfully disagree with that 1,000%. Hannah Gadsby, in that statement, and then also in the entirety of the special, I didn't cherry-pick one statement. That It's a decent representation of her position on this, which she explains over the better part of an hour. Gadsby is ruling out the possibility that healthy self-deprecation could ever come from a gay comic. She is declaring that gay comics, gay people, can only ever exist, in her words, on the margins. In doing so, she relegates gay people to permanently weak and vulnerable status. I think that is a highly inaccurate view of how the world is working at the moment, and I think it is, frankly, a pretty fucked up thing to do. Because think about it. When a comedian self-deprecates... What they're saying to the audience is they're saying, I can take it. It is a form of jujitsu in which the comic demonstrates strength by admitting weakness. The comic is saying, here are my flaws, but you know what? Who gives a shit? I am fine. The audience laughs because they feel comfortable. They see a person who is flawed, but also unafraid. On some primitive level, people are getting the signal, which is, we are all safe here. And Hannah Gadsby seems to believe that no gay person could ever possess that strength. She uses the language of the social justice left, marginalized communities, for example, that assumes that certain groups will always be weak and unsafe. Now, while I acknowledge that some people in those groups, of course, are sometimes weak and unsafe, and sometimes they are specifically weak and unsafe because of their membership in that group, I cannot overemphasize how toxic I think Gadsby's mindset is. What she's preaching is the polar opposite of empowerment. It is a plea for empathy that condemns large swaths of humanity to permanent on-the-brink-of-crisis status. Gadsby also indicates that she not only thinks that this state of affairs is true now, but that it will always be true. It is fatalism in its purest form. Luckily, most people do not seem to see the world the way that Hannah Gadsby does. Many people from quote-unquote marginalized groups have found empowerment through comedy. Richard Pryor was the perfect comic for the Black Power 70s because he clearly did not give a fraction of a fuck what anyone thought of him. He talked about whatever he wanted to talk about, including <laughs> lighting himself on fire while freebasing cocaine, why not? If it's something you did, it's a viable comedy topic. Now, presented a different way, that story could have been minstrelry, 
But it was Richard Pryor doing the bit. It was empowering because Richard Pryor was a master of his craft and absolutely fucking bulletproof or fireproof, as the case may be, when he told that story. Look up that clip on YouTube. It's a great bit. Gay entertainers, in direct contrast to what Gatsby seems to believe is possible, have achieved the same feat of empowerment through comedy. In contrast to the Oscars, a notable awards show triumph was Neil Patrick Harris's intro number at the 2011 Tony Awards. It was called Broadway's Not Just for Gays Anymore. This is awesome. Please look it up on YouTube. It's also, of course, on the written version of this article. It's called Broadway's Not Just for Gays Anymore. And it's worth remembering, this is from 2011. When this was performed, gay marriage was illegal in 44 states. Being openly gay had only very recently reached not definitely a career killer status. And it also helped if you were Neil Patrick Harris or somebody where people kind of already knew. It was very choppy waters in which to be an openly gay entertainer. And it was in that environment that Neil Patrick Harris, along with Adam Schlesinger, who did the music from Fountains of Wayne, who passed away. He was such a great writer, Adam Schlesinger, and David Jabberbaum, formerly of The Daily Show, they snuck this six minutes of unmitigated joy past the censors. Let me play a quick clip right now. If you feel like someone that this world excludes, it's no longer only for dudes who like dudes. Attention every breeder, you're invited to the theater. It's not just for gays anymore. I really love this song. It strikes me as empowerment personified, but I know people who find it insulting. One writer I know called it, quote, gay blackface, and that, well, that is certainly a perspective that that writer is entitled to. Personally, I see it as an unequivocal triumph. I see it as Neil Patrick Harris being openly gay and openly awesome. He is not apologizing for shit. He is poking fun at himself and also poking fun at all the people in the theater who join in on the fun. There's an extended joke in the song about liberal intellectuals and the crowd, which is, they're on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. They laugh at it a lot because it's a funny joke and they're laughing at themselves. The crowd is most definitely laughing with Neil Patrick Harris. He is completely in charge. He is utterly fucking bulletproof. And if attention every breeder, you're invited to the theater is not a great line, then may Will Smith... Come to my door and smack me straight in the mouth. The ability to take a joke is a positive trait. A society that places no limits on what's fair game would be cruel, but a society that declares most things off limits would be treating people like children. When people can't take a joke, well, you know, that's really a shame. I hope those people get to a place where they can let go of their fear, because I'd like them to join in on the fun. I don't know if our society is getting more humorless or not. Let me say that one more time. I don't know if our society is getting more humorless or not. But if the recent behavior from the guy who started his career doing funky fresh raps while wearing a sideways baseball hat is any indication, then maybe we are headed in the wrong direction. And that's the episode. How ridiculous is it that I'm getting on the record about <laughs> Hannah Gadsby's Nanette? 
four years after it happened. Well, I didn't have a podcast four years ago. And honestly, I would be perfectly happy to just never talk about Culture War lightning rods like Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, but I do think that constantly categorizing gay and non-white and other groups of people as weak is uh, fucked up and uh, far more common than it should be, and unfortunately I do think Nanette kind of personifies that mindset. So I did Nanette and The Slap in the same episode. It is a comedy culture war buffet Today on the podcast, some of the items in the buffet have been sitting there longer than others. Once again, all my culture war hot takes, as well as a lot of shit about zoning, can be found at imightberwrong.substack.com. You can please go there and choose to pay me or don't. It's up to you. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.